In the last chapter of Lilac Wine, Robert visited Abelia shortly after his incident aboard the Sydney, and Abelia makes a salve for his eye made of marigold and arnica. If you haven't listened to that episode or previous episodes, please do so. I am releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, lilac wine. Chapter 18 The flamethrowers roared in the morning light, igniting screams as they hit their marks and burnt out cellars throughout the decimated village. German soldiers were leaping from their hiding places and throwing down their arms as the American troops, accompanied by the blue uniformed French flamethrowing unit, made their way through the rubble. Burned and mutilated bodies littered the debris, still smoking from the morning artillery attack. Shouts and screams punctuated the occasional rifle burst, echoing among the skeletons of buildings and barns. One soldier walked alone, separated from his unit. He had just crossed the German front line that ran through the center of the small French village. His rifle was pointed down to the multitude, of possible hiding places the Bosch could be, just waiting for an opportunity to leap out. Continue through the village, someone from behind yelled. Form a defensive position on the east side of town. The soldier stopped and surveyed his area. A few of his comrades walked several paces in front of him. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a movement of gray from the shadows behind a partially destroyed wall. He raised his rifle. Slowly, a middle-aged German soldier emerged from behind the wall. He cast down his weapon and raised his arms. His uniform was tattered and burned. Dust muddied his face, yet his mustache was still waxed and pristine. His eyes, though, were full of fear. His hands trembled slightly. Comrade, he said, speaking in English, please, I have wife and children. The American stood, rooted to his spot, unsure what to do. Around him, other units were gathering prisoners. Please, the soldier pleaded. A tear tumbled from his eye, clearing a trail through the dirt that covered his face. Well, it looks like Flower got his first bosh, said another doughboy coming up from behind. He held a handgun, an unlit cigarette hung from his lips. Well, it's about time, he said with a grin. The soldier with the rifle didn't move. He swallowed hard. 
do it. Now. The soldier didn't take his eyes off the German. He searched deep into those eyes, but did not find the monster he was told resided in all Bosch soldiers. All he could see was fear. The same fear he felt. He couldn't pull the trigger. After a moment, his finger eased and he lowered the muzzle. We don't have time for this bullshit, said the other. He turned and a flash erupted from his gun. Simultaneously, the German fell to his knees, a dark spot spreading across his chest. He clutched at the gray fabric of his tunic, his eyes wide. Another flash and the man was sent backwards, his arms twitching uncontrollably at his chest, the air escaping from his mouth in rushes. Turning, the man with the cigarette yelled, Let's go! Without even a glance at the soldier still holding his rifle, he was rooted to the spot. Now, flower, he demanded. The American stopped several feet from the fallen German soldier who turned his head slowly in his direction, blood leaching from his mouth. His pupils were wide, his eyes glassy. His whole body trembled as he tried to speak, tried to utter words. Nothing came out but air, a gurgling red froth. Robert woke up in a sweat, not sure for the moment where he was. His alarm clock ticked loudly on the nightstand. In the darkness, he could just make out the hands. It was a little before 5 a.m. And then he noticed Teddy's dark silhouette. The large dog was sitting on the side of his bed, staring at him in the darkness. Robert sat up, not sure which was more disconcerting, the dream, or the fact that Teddy watched him in the night. His head was pounding, but he didn't want to lay down again for fear those images would return. In all his years of having these prescient dreams, he never could get used to their realism, especially those dreams of tragedy or, as in more recent years, war. And these were images that would never leave him. He could still picture the face of the young woman floating in the Chicago River in his dream about the Eastland disaster. And the face of that German soldier was not something he would soon forget either. It was not uncommon for him to have multiple dreams of the same event, and there was no doubt that this dream was connected to the dream he had had on the train. He even recognized the face of the soldier with the cigarette. He was named Les. He remembered that from the previous dream. He just couldn't piece together the scene, and that was the problem with his dreams. There was never enough information for him to discover the identity of the event before the fact, if at all. Usually it would only be revealed to him after it had occurred, usually in the form of some newspaper article or photograph. That was what had occurred three years earlier. He had dreamt several nights in a row of a man swinging an axe among flames and smoke, hitting flesh and bone. It was one of his rather gruesome dreams. He had variations of the same dream three times in a row, and each time it ended with an image of a rather attractive woman staring at the sky in a puddle of blood, flames reflecting in her vacant eyes. He could never forget her face. 
and found himself scanning crowds and newspapers, anything, for a hint of who she was. Then, a few weeks later, that woman graced the front page of the Chicago Tribune, Mrs. Martha Borthwick Cheney. Frank Lloyd Wright had left his family to be with her, creating a local scandal a few years earlier. She had been murdered along with several of her children and friends at Lloyd's country estate in Wisconsin in the summer of 1914, murdered with an axe by a deranged groundskeeper while the estate burned to the ground. Awful crime in Wisconsin Cottage, declared the headline. For that one day in 1914, the war did not dominate the headlines for a change. Not all of his dreams were sensational. Most were mundane, actually. A man riding a bike through a busy street, carrying some red flowers, boys in scouting uniforms, lighting a fire and telling stories, a girl cradling a doll as her mother sang her a lullaby. He actually enjoyed those dreams. But they, too, were very vivid, like they were his own memories from a scene he himself had witnessed. But he was never sure which dreams were prophetic and which were merely dreams. He didn't know how other people dreamed, actually. It was not something he had ever talked about, deciding instead to keep this secret to himself. Robert rose, and after quickly putting on a pair of pants, he went down to the kitchen to make a pot of coffee, unsure if the current pattern of dreams would ever reveal themselves. He was actually a little surprised that he hadn't had more dreams of the war. No dream of the Lusitania, no dream of the assassination of the Archduke, only the Battle of the Somme last year, and now this one. After lighting the stove to start the pot of coffee percolating, he sat down at the table, rubbing his eyes. The dogs had followed him into the kitchen and sat obediently around him, with Teddy at the lead. His tail thumped softly on the floor every time Robert looked in his direction. Robert tried not to do that. He didn't want to encourage him. "'I thought I heard you rise,' said Art as he walked into the kitchen. He wore a stained athletic union shirt, stretched out and patched numerous times. As a widower... Art cared little for his appearance and preferred to walk around the house in his skivvies. Not used to seeing you up this early. Art normally rose at an ungodly hour and judged others who enjoyed sleeping in a little. Couldn't sleep, replied Robert. Art placed two mugs on the table and then reached into a cupboard near the back door. All of the dogs rose at the sound as Art pulled down a tin of Spratt's dog cakes. Come on, crew, he said. He disappeared beyond the door with the pack in close pursuit. He returned a moment later and placed the tin back on the shelf. Then he went to the stove, grabbed the percolator, and poured the hot coffee into the mugs. Art wasn't much of a conversationalist. Living with a pack of dogs for so many years probably limited his ability to talk with someone who actually talks back. He didn't talk too much at the post either unless he was barking out orders or talking about the mail. The two sat in silence for several moments. Ever since the incident the previous Saturday, it seemed to Robert that Art was a little more distant. It was quite clear to him that Art had disapproved of the outing and probably would have done more to prevent him from going had he known about it. The drinking in particular had wrinkled Art's brow in condemnation. 
Perhaps he would go with Art to church on Sunday. That would help make amends, Robert thought. But there was more going on than just his troubles with Art. Over the past couple of days, he noticed a change in attitude among the people in Lily Springs. They looked at him different. No longer did they greet him with a smile when he delivered their letters. He could see silhouettes lingering behind curtains as he walked up to the doors, which were now more than often closed. He could only imagine what they were thinking. No doubt the worst their imaginations could muster. Admittingly, he was unused to such attention. But his morning thoughts weren't on whatever the people in town thought of him. He couldn't shake the dream and the horrifying image of that German soldier looking up to the sky. Like in his other dreams, this face would not be easy to forget. The pleading eyes, the meticulously sculpted mustache. Robert wondered who he was and if he would ever find out. Probably not, he realized, just one of the nameless millions affected by this war. Robert was so caught up in his thoughts, it was a moment before he realized that Art was talking. In fact, it was the word enlist that brought him back. What was that? I was just asking, replied Art, if you have any plans to enlist. This had all the markings of a conversation he had had a couple of months ago. You sound like Uncle Henry, he replied. Art frowned, noting the tone of Robert's voice. Just asking, he replied. I know if I was, if you were my age, Robert interrupted, you would already have enlisted. That's what Uncle Henry said. He stood and put his mug on the counter. I really have no desire to enlist, Art, okay? That may change down the line. Who knows? I might get drafted if this war drags on a couple more years. But as of now, you won't see me standing in line to go off to fight. Art huffed, not knowing what to say, but wanting to make sure Robert noticed his displeasure. He stood, adjusting his union suit that had creeped up his backside. I've got some things to tidy up at the office, he said softly. Maybe I'll see you at the celebrations. Without even waiting for a reply or even looking at Robert, he turned and left the kitchen, his large frame creating a ruckus on the stairs as he made his way to the second floor. The pounding in Robert's head had not gotten any better, even with the coffee. He let out a low sigh, contemplating how to make things better with art. If that was even possible at this point, one thing was for sure. He didn't know how much longer he could stay in this town. He found himself more than a little homesick. Problem was, he really didn't have a home anymore. Of course, there was his childhood home in Evanston, which he had inherited after his mother's death. He rarely went there, however, only when he needed something like the suitcase that he pulled from a closet a few weeks ago. It stood too full of memories, collecting dust for the last several years. Memories that Robert did not want to disturb. Art soon thumped down the stairs, and Robert heard him grumble something incoherent as he opened the front door and left the house, closing it loudly behind him. The sun was now up, streaming into the kitchen window. The dogs were chasing a rabbit through the backyard. And Robert 
had nothing to do. That, perhaps, was the biggest problem with Lily Springs. It deduced boredom. His thoughts turned to the 4th of July celebrations in the town triangle. After his little confrontation with Art and the disturbing nature of his dreams, he wasn't quite in the mood for the dose of patriotism Ellie and the others had in store. The only thing he was looking forward to that day was the possibility of seeing Abelia. That is, if she was going to show up. So that was chapter 18 of Lilac Wine, and we went back into Robert's dreams, and his dreams about the war and this incident are going to get more and more detailed, more and more realistic, and more and more frightening for him because he's never had dreams like this before. And so we have the image of this German soldier, a middle-aged soldier with the mustache who is shot after laying down his arms. This, I think, is really what the war became. It became this nihilistic uh, bloodbath that would lead to the 1920s and disillusionment and everything that that the war was about when it started the rush of patriotism and nationalism across the world ended in a just a blanket of pessimism and um and so we're trying to get some of that there and uh in researching you know words and slang used in world war ii of course propaganda was a big thing. You have to make your enemies seem less than human. So you, you use derogatory terms. In World War I, there were a lot of slang used for Germans. Uh, Hun was something that was used a lot in both the United States and Britain. Kraut was something that was used as well as Jerry and Fritz. The term Bosch was a term that was used a lot by the French. And since the American soldiers spent time training with French soldiers quite a bit, that was the term that I had come across a lot when researching the American presence in World War I, the term Bosch. Is a term that just simply means the German, the Germans. And so, um, yeah, so we have that term there. And, uh, yeah, so we got, you know, we got the war. And, you know, originally I had based, as I mentioned before, that scene on the Battle of Cantini. But uh, that may not be the Battle of Cantini anymore. It was just simply based on it. And once the book is finished, I have kind of 
altered a little bit about how it's going to end. And uh, yeah, the battle is going to be very important, but it may be a different one. But by this time in the war, a lot of the battles were very much the same. You know, decimated villages, uh, nihilistic attitude, and so forth. So this chapter is a relatively short chapter. It's setting up the next arc of the story that's going to get things moving even more. And in the next chapter, we're going to go to the town square for the 4th of July celebration. And that's going to be several chapters long. And uh, then we're going to get you know, a huge incident that's going to push the narrative out of Lily Springs and uh, to Chicago for a bit. And, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away at the moment. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, please feel free to email me at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. You could also go to our website, lilacwinenovel.com, and fill out the contact form. Would love to connect with you, please. And also tell your friends about the podcast if they like historical fiction and um, have a road trip coming up or something and want something to listen to, let them know. We are almost to 1,000 downloads. So that's pretty exciting. And that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for you. So thank you again for listening. I am Bruce Janu. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit lilacwinenovel.com to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. Thank you.